0: As As I begin my own spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them in listening to their stories, uninterrupted. My name is Hamila and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah Allah along that journey. Today I am joined by Istad Ryan Hilliard. Estad Ryan's journey is a unique one. He grew up in Chicago and learned about Islam at my childhood mosque, the Muslim Community Center, and Sister Mary Ali's IIE which Chicago listeners will know well. He eventually went on to become one of the founding members of the Chicago Convert Connection, a support group for converts and a precursor to what we know today as the Leaf Collective Chicago. He's now in Toronto, where he serves as the Youth and Volunteer Manager at the Islamic Society of North America Canada. Reflect on his story well, and all the amazing and mysterious ways the brings people to faith. Bismillah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Growing up in, I grew up in Chicago, specifically in the suburb called Evanston, Illinois. Um, Northwestern University is, uh, is there, and a couple of other wonderful institutions, and. Um, had A pretty decent like suburban sort of childhood, but with a lot of access to the city, and also, like, economically speaking, like, lower middle class. So um, my parents were both working. My dad was on a Navy reservist, so he was in the military, and uh, also had an like, engineering, you know, engineering electric, electrical expertise. So that's where his main field was. And then for my mom, she um, she was. She had always been, like she had been, for the most part been raised in Edison as well, and so for her like much of the city and everything was just well known to her. And, uh, and her background was in uh, interior design, and then she started getting into like real estate and like. So she had been working in the real estate uh, industry for some time. So growing up, it was myself and my younger brother. He's uh, two year, two and a half years younger than me. Uh, we had a would know, say like a pretty stable childhood, you know greater for hundred and um, we still but we, that didn't mean that we were sheltered or not exposed to many of the issues and the, the challenges of being you know, young black you know, young black men or being a, a middle class family black family in the city in a big city such as Chicago and it was still you know, police profiling and gang you know, and, you know, issues around uh, gangs and you know, drug culture was still not what we not you know, not what we're seeing right now with like opioids and like abuse uh, prescription meds, but we are still along the lines of like crack cocaine and uh and uh and other things and other things as well, which you know, at least at that time were still pretty severe for the body. And then Chicago as well was just was just known to be a rough city. Right. So even for us being in the suburbs, being in Evanston, we had cousins, we had family that we had to visit on the other side of town, like in Wild Hunnets, over in uh in Inglewood, over on the South Shore and you know, in other places as well that we so we saw how they you know we saw the what the other side of the coin if you will, right? We weren't you know, shy away from like told not to go there because oh um, you,
2: you know, might get
1: interested in like, no, this is this is your family and you need to visit them as well but also understand that they you know they just have you know things are different for them than they are so having that growing up was a, was a good way for us to be able to appreciate you know, what we were given and what we had and the blessings that we had as a family, but also to not be blind to the to the, you know, to the suffering or to the issues and the, and the systematic oppression of others, right? And seeing it for what it is, and not like rose-colored you glasses know, you know, or anything like that are having this naive perspective of how things are and how things should be.
2: For people that don't really know the landscape of Chicago, can you just kind of paint the like stark differences between Evanston and the south side that you mentioned, or <laughs> Well,
1: uh, I don't think I really have to do that. I don't think I really have to do that, because when, when I bring up the fact that I'm from Chicago, I'll just say Chicago in general, because nobody really knows Evanston specifically yet. Just like when I say, like, when somebody says, oh, I'm from Toronto, it's like, oh, okay, you from Mississauga, Brampton, Scarborough, and then like, you get specific after you identify the general area so, but when I tell people I'm from Chicago, they're like, "Oh man, that's a dangerous way. Right? They kind of get, they like have this already have yeah. this perception of like gang culture and how you know shootings and all and all these other things is what well they hear about in the news and in popular culture. And it's not without a basis, but at the same time, it's quite exaggerated, I would say. However, the basis coming of that is that yes, there are you know, Chicago has had a reputation for decades. Being very, uh, being very tough, being very industrious, and also being a very rough city, and so all of these, um, these uh, these ethnic subgroups such as like uh, Polish people, Italians, um, East, you know, other Eastern Europeans, uh, the Irish, and then now and then even and, and then after, after the, the collapse, or actually. After the shift, I should say, America collapse, The shift from slavery into what we're saying now of our, you know, our, of the of the U.S. There was a, what was called the Great Migration, which was a number of uh, a huge influx of black families that were leaving the South and coming to cities in the Midwest and, in, and over on the East Coast to seek jobs and in in, in upward mobility, upward economic mobility in the cities. So most of my and I'm part of that trajectory. Of that trajectory. Many of my family members and their, and their relatives and my ancestors are from places like Texas, Arkansas, Tennessee, which has a direct linear you know, trajectory north into Chicago. Very similar, many people in places like New York and New Jersey will have relatives in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, because they move directly north to the bigger cities. So you have that aspect of it as well where many black people Coming and settling in Chicago are also living on the South Side, right? They've established you know, enclaves of their own, such as Bronzeville, right, and other wonderful neighborhoods that have a very deep, very rich history for you on African American culture and history. And other communities and other ethnicities come and kind of group themselves together. And that's one thing that's noticed about very stark and very noticeable about Chicago is that it's a very self-circulating, right? Many you know we have these pockets that are almost very clearly defined. Of, specific, you know, group or specific specific subset lives here. they built their businesses, they own the buildings, maybe, and they've established a little commune or or an enclave for themselves. And there's not too much of a blend or a mix in between, with the exception of maybe, like, a few places. And then gentrification comes in and kind of disrupts a lot of things. So there, in a nutshell, there's that. But also, in terms of, like, the the cultural landscape as well, of what people expect, like, violence and things of that sort in Chicago, Yes, there's always going to be that as well because this is the very, it's very similar to what you see in New York or Los Angeles, where a group of people, based on ethnicity ethnicity or religion or whatever other social cultural marker, cut into a certain space and try to establish themselves and try to express that. Sometimes it has a negative, you know, negative connotations or a negative effect on other people, and there's sort of conflict and there's tension. So it's complicated like it is for many other major cities or major, you know, major areas. and US and it has that very complicated and oftentimes messy history, right? That we still see to this day, and these are all things that are just products or just continuations of, of that history.
2: So, uh, with that context um, and like the area that you grew up, the environment that you're in, um, where does Islam come into play? Like, you mentioned that uh, some of the first clickbuzz you gave were at Northwestern, mm-hmm. but how did you even get to that point?
1: Well, my story, my, my trajectory of, of Embracing Islam had next to nothing to do with Chicago. Actually, Chicago was a part of it, but it wasn't where I first learned about it. As a matter of fact, it was um, it was like before. Like Chicago has a very before I was aware of it. Chicago has a very long-standing relationship with Islam, even with some people. You know, with some people nowadays would even consider not consider Islam. What I mean by that, what I mean by that is that you have to long-standing, very well-established communities, such as the Nation of Islam and the Moorish Science Temple and many other uh Islamic groups that are part and parcel with the Black American experience that have established themselves in there and have, um, you know, have a, a deep impact on the growth of the Black communities in Chicago. And anybody on the South, anybody in Chicago as well, especially Black people, like if you they know that you're Muslim, and they see that you're visibly Muslim. For the most part, they have like this very innate respect for it. respect for you, because it removes like this it removes mm-hmm. this privilege from you, and also another time, to, like a historical historic, like, historical understanding that Muslims do do right by the by the people, right? People like Malcolm from Malcolm X and Muhammad and many of the other community members, like Sister Claire Muhammad, who started like schools. For black kids to be able to learn in, 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 in Chicago, they did right by people economically and socially.
0: And so, because that was a
1: vehicle for upward mobility and change and for self determination for black communities, they have a good opinion of Islam. So all of this was there, and I was still unaware of it for the most part. All I knew about Islam before, you know, I would say before 2006, was that you Malcolm X was Muslim. They have a prophet that's named that, that Muhammad. If you do become Muslim, you have to change your name to Muhammad. And there's a black box called the Kaaba in the middle of the desert that people go, circ- go in circles around. Right, and that's, part, and that's the direction that Muslims pray in. They pray to the east. right? They pray facing this this, uh, this black house. And that was it. But it wasn't a, a, a negative or a derogatory reference. Right, it's just like, okay, that's what Muslims do. That's Islam and everything. But I know that that has a good impact because of people like the nation, people like Malcolm X who did right by by us by black people, so I had a good opinion of Muslims without actually ever going into it because I was raised in a Christian household. Right, um, my parents were not heavily involved in the church, but involved enough where it was, you know, it was a it was a balanced, healthy, you know, uh, understanding of like having God involved in your life and everything. And so, yeah, I grew up in a church. I um, would sing in the choir. I was a musician. I used to play saxophone for my, you know, for my church and everything. I was involved in the youth leadership programs and, and the like they had there. So that was my childhood. And so, coming university, like my university years, so in like 2001, yeah, like a, yeah like actually 2003 onward, that's when things started to shift a little bit because I started to come a little. Wanted to, I to you know, solidify my blackness, solidify my black identity, because I was growing up in the suburbs. I'm all, all these white kids, and everybody else. And like, well, I need to like, figure out what my blackness actually means. So I read like the autobiography of Malcolm X. I read like I was reading like Marcus Garvey and uh, Ralph Ellison and, and all these other, you know, and, uh, Angela Davis and uh, a number of other authors as well that, that I really Tony Morrison, rest in peace recently passed away, like these were these were people that were helping me understand what that meant. And in that time my dad gave gifted me a book. He gave me a book called The Moors of Spain by Stanley Lane Poole. And on the cover of this book, you know, and again, I know there's a different print of it, but on the cover of the book of, that I have, the copy I have, is this majestic black man with a giant beard, a turban, and this giant like sword, this shimitar that is you know, resting on his on his hip, and he just looks like a boss. Like I'm just never seen anything like that before, and I'm like, "Whoa, this is intense." And the intention of the, like the the psyche behind why my, my dad even gave me that book in first place was because I was studying Spanish. That was my major in, in undergrad, <clears throat> and so I was at that time around. Let's it was around 2004, or 2005. I was beginning to think about studying abroad, studying overseas, and you know, really solidifying the Spanish. And so because he had been in the Navy, he had spent time in Spain, he was encouraging me to do that. Not only because he knew it, but also he knew that there was a Black history there. And so tying into to seeing him try to develop my Blackness. He was like, hey, maybe you can learn a little bit more about you know, our history in this European country. And so he let me read the book, and, but as an opening the book, I was seeing all these like, Islamic and Arabic Arabic names and stuff like Abdurrahman Athani and 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 like commanders named like Musa and you know and all these other names and stuff like that. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> like I thought all this was your name Muhammad, right? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. What, 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 what am I seeing here? But it was fascinating because I was now seeing something about my history that I hadn't known before, but now it was you know, the door was opening up a little bit more my understanding that you know, in my mind, I kind of knew that Christianity was sort of forced upon our people, right? Something that, you know, much. I mean, that, that's not to, to, you know, to throw shade on anybody who has chosen Christianity as a faith in anything, right? You make the decisions that you make based off of what you're expecting you know, of your relationship with, with God and with the divine. But for many, but for, for the most part, by and large, many black people who were stolen from Africa and enslaved in in the Western Hemisphere and in other parts of the world, Christianity was part of a colonial project and, you know, intended to remove their identity and to enforce upon them a sense of domination and uh, lack of self-determination, so that they would be more economically viable for the, you know, for the imperial or colonial projects that were that were being put forward by the powers that be. So, with that in mind, I wanted to. I saw that I saw in this that um, there were this is the religion of black people before slavery. Right? I was like, wow, I really, like, this is the type of relationship that people have with, that black people, especially from Africa, had with God before that. They were Muslim. They identified as Muslim. So when I started digging into it a little bit more, realizing that, okay, that Islam actually has its roots with a prophet who sees himself in line with the tradition of Jesus and Moses and all the other personalities. And the relationship with God that I saw in the Bible, that I saw growing up as a Christian. So that started. So it was that curiosity and tying those dots together of wanting to affirm uh, my black my blackness my blackness and my identity. to seeing recognizing as well the how religion and the relationship with God was weaponized against our against against us, and wanting to you know, to remove that violence from that violence from it three, to, sub- to give more substance and substantiate a much more personal relationship with God just for myself. Because that was a good thing, that was one of the great things about being part of a Christian is that you're giving a love and appreciation for God as a creator and everything, so I can't take that away. But now I have a chance to clean up or purify that experience, right? Kind of remove some of the things that are more murky and uh, less uh, that are less uh, problematic from that relationship. So, come, it now comes around to 2006 and I decided that I'm going to go study abroad in Spain. All right, so I'm going to spend six months there from June up into you know, more like six months kind of on and off. So I was going to spend the month of June there for a summer program and then go back for like the fall semester from like September to December. So that means I was going to come back to Chicago in July and August. So I get myself ready to go and actually go there for the first time. But It was during that trip actually that I really got the chance to experience what I was reading in that book by Stanley Lee Poole. The history was very much alive and present, and it was, even even when, like, the current government and the current culture as well, like, kind of makes it a, a tourist attraction and everything, you can't subdue the power of that. And the prime example that I can remember for me first like, being moved by it was when I went to the Alhambra palace, and many Muslims now will go there. and. Have a wonderful experience and everything if they get a chance to visit southern Spain. And we were encouraged to do so as well. That was called Andalus, right? That was Andalusia. That and was the, the stronghold, if you look at it from a military perspective, but that was the length of influence that Muslims had when they, uh, when they came in and conquered that part of Europe in the early uh, 700s, early part of the 8th century CE. See. But seeing the palace walls with a phrase like etched into the walls, it was La in Arabic. All of the walls said like La like, La La There is no victory except in God. All of the walls. And this was what this one ruler specifically when he built the Ahimur Palace had had him do. He did he commanded his, his builders and his architects and his craftsmen to do this. Why? Because he wanted to remember Allah that everything that he had could be taken away. Everything comes from God. I'm shocked. Like, when I look at this, I'm like flabbergasted because I'm thinking of all the other conquerors and people that have been religiously convicted to go into a place and take it over for like military conquest or for whatever reason. How many, how often is it that those people actually remember God rather than, or instead build a statue of themselves? I didn't see that when I went to the Ahmad. I saw a man who etched in stone that. Everything you have is from God, and everything can be taken away. And that shook me because I wanted that type of relationship with God. I didn't see, you know, I wasn't, I had it to a certain level, but this was like, this is the next level, this was another step in it that I didn't know was possible. And so I wanted that for myself. So that's when I really started thinking more about learning more about this love. And I had a wonderful um, human being with me that was also studying there, he was from Seattle, his name is Nazir Har, I hope if he hears this, he remembers that I still remember his name and the impact that he had on me. Of like just being that person that said like yo, if you have any questions about anything about Islam, so just let me know. It was like just let me know. And so like he he just opened his doors to me and everything. We spent a lot of time that month of June together. And so when I came back to Chicago after that after that month of being here of being in Spain, I hit the books. I went to the library and checked out all the, book, the books about Islam, the good, the bad, the ugly. You know I was, but I didn't have the confidence to go to a masjid yet. I didn't have the confidence to go into a mosque because I was under the impression that like if you Muslim they would kick you out, right? I was just like, all right, well you know I, maybe like there was like this secret like invisible barrier that like it taps, you know a siren goes off somewhere and it says like this captain just walked in, get him. Right? I was like, okay, I didn't, you know, I don't know, I have a weird imagination sometimes, but uh, yeah, I just didn't have that confidence to actually step into a, a mosque. Yet. But I still read about it, and I still was at and I still kept in touch with Nazir, and I started asking people that I knew were Muslim back in my undergrad you know, back in my in my university, which, by the way, it wasn't even in Chicago. I was studying in North Carolina, North Carolina AT, and historically black college in Greensboro. So I was, like, reaching out to come, a couple of people there that I knew were Muslim by name, and just asking them questions and stuff like that. And then it got to a point where I actually worked up the courage to go to a mosque, and I went to um, the Muslim community center m c c on Elston Avenue in North used to go to
2: growing up, really yeah, yeah,
1: the one that used to be like a theater yeah. and that. yeah all of it, so I went there and nobody introduced me, nobody walked in with me, and I was kind of like I felt I was like sneaking in, and I sat in the back and I observed a prayer. I think it was like it was in the evening, so I had to be like mother or Mariaisha or something like that and They moved me to tears because I've never, ever seen grown men pray like that together. Like, yeah, like in church, like we all, I've seen grown men cry. I've seen them like raise their hands and and talk to God and everything and speak in tongues and all these other aspects of, of, of my church life and the church experience. But it was something about like seeing men line up together, foot to foot, shoulder to shoulder and put their faces on the ground, right? Bow to their Lord and put their face on the ground. Just in the exact same way that I was reading about Abraham when he prostrated to his Lord. Musa when he prostrated to his Lord. Jesus on the mount when he prostrated to his Lord in the middle of the night, right? Like, this is what they were doing. Like, why don't we do that? As Christians, like, why are we, why do we sit in pews? Why are we sitting in seats? We should be in no chairs. Pray like with our with our entire beings, right? With our minds, our hearts, and our bodies. And so I was like, wow, this I think this this might this might be it, but I still have my reservations. And so I still hadn't told my parents. I was like trying to hide the fact that I was doing all this research from them. Like it was weird, like you know how some people have like, you know, like journey magazines or like people, you know, like something that you are trying to hide from the parents under their bed. I had books about this lab <laughs> under my bed. I was that, I was a nerd. <laughs> I was like, okay, of all the things to have hidden under there, books, right? Books about another religion, right? And, uh, but my parents eventually like, kind of like cut away of what was happening. And uh, so I was, in my mind, I had prepared myself to go back to Spain. And I said to myself, I think I should, I wanted to become Muslim. But I wanted to do it before I went, before I went back to Spain in Chicago. I wanted to do it in C.C. And there was like this reading room on the corner next to it as well that was run by this wonderful woman named Sister Mary Ali. I mean, I'll be pleased with her and have mercy on her. She passed away. And uh, you know, she was a powerhouse in terms of dawah and, and her work in the Chicago Muslim community. And so she had some classes there for new Muslims. And so I actually started going to those classes to learn more. And by the time I still had my set of my shahada, I was just trying to learn more. And so I wanted, because I had built up some trust and rapport with this group, I wanted to say my shahada with them come listen with them. But the day that I went, which was the night before I was supposed to fly back to Spain, they were closed. I didn't know they had like, like one day a week that they, you know, other than Sunday, they were like not closed or something like that. So I was like heartbroken. It was like, I wanted to do it with them. And so, uh, so I was going to go back to Spain and I was like heartbroken and all this other stuff. And on the way to the airport, the next day, my dad, my mom didn't say anything. My mom had already like, kind of like, Prodded me a little bit and everything, and she was like, "Why would you? Why would you turn your back on Jesus and stuff like that?" I was like, "I'm not turning my back on Jesus. I just this is what Jesus was doing. He was prostrating on the ground. It's the same thing. The spirit of it is still there. This is something that we just don't do as Christians." Then you know, mom start crying. You you can't have a you can't have a logical debate with your mom while she's crying. I was just like, there's no not even about winning. That's just like I can't get through to you because I'm I don't hate. I hate to see you cry, so I just didn't broach the subject with her anymore. But she knew. She knew I was like leaning towards this decision, <clears throat> and so I imagine that she told my dad, and my dad later on told me this that in the car ride on the way to the airport, he already knew, and so he told me. And I remember him saying this very clearly. He said, "You know, if you just dis- whatever you decide to do." And whatever decisions that you make in your life, make sure that you do them for your own sake and for, the, and for your relationship with God and not because somebody else told you to. And I was like, oh my God, he knows. He found my books, he found my stash. <laughs> he found my stash. But like, it's kind of his fault, right? If I had really think about it, because he was the one that gave me the book in the first place. He gave me most, more sustained by standing like, well, you know what you did. You know that this could have happened. You knew the possibilities of what, you know, that I'd breed into it and, like, want to learn more, and then boom, now now your son wants to be, wants to put his face on the ground and pray five times a day and not even bacon anymore. You had to know this was going to happen. Like, come on, Dad. Come on, Dad. Really? But, um, and then he told me in hindsight that, like, he knew when he told me that advice and that, you know, it's okay. Because he was like, this is... And again, that kind of goes back to the relationship that many black people in America have with, with Islam, is that they know that there's good in it. Well, yeah, it's not Christianity. Yeah, there's, you know, they believe, very, you know, my parents still believe to this day very, you know, very solidly and strongly that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light, and that, you know, it's, he's their savior. But um, they have a healthy, and a healthy respect and understanding for Islam. They see it in me, they see it in my character, they see it in my growth, and that it's bettered me as a person, so they're okay with it, because it's a matter of just like seeing a, seeing that faith in action, right? Because of, of one of the Christian maxims is that faith without faith without works is dead, right? If you have iman without islam, basically the translation, if you have faith without the actual actions of following through on it, and not just your prayers, but also the way you interact with people and the way that you deal with people with mercy and justice, then that's when you have balance. If you don't have that balance, then what do you do so, as long as, so again, that's not only shows the relationship that, again, black people have overall with Islam, but also in a microcosmic and very direct personal way that my parents were able to justify and understand that, yes, Islam actually has, is tied to their Christian experience. Right? So, when I went back to Spain, I was on the plane and I cried myself to sleep because I wanted to say Machado with this group at, at, the, at, at the reading room next to MCC. When I woke up in the morning, I was still on the plane, and we were flying over like Portugal. And we were in the land, soon I remembered that there was a mosque in Spain, in Granada, where I was, that I could go to. Because that summer, I was I've, I actually happened upon this mes- this mosque, this masjid, accidentally. I like broke in in a sense, because you know, like I read the history of, of Islam in Spain and everything, and I thought that all the Muslims were driven out, all the mosques were de- destroyed and turned into churches. So I thought there was just like, okay, we got a few remnants of it here and there, but nothing's left. Here's this brand new mess that was like built, like I've just found out like two years before then sitting on top of the hill that looks like in indis- you know, like up on the outside looks, you know, completely, uh, you know, uh, indistinct from some of the other buildings around it, but when you walk into it, it is gorgeous. It like has, it has a little mini garden with like olive trees and, and lemon trees and their own fountains. You walk into like the like the main area to get ready for wudu, and there's this beautiful like Moroccan tile, you know, a wall with the little spigots and water coming out for you to make wudu and to get a drink. You walk into the Musalla, and it's the main prayer hall, and it smells like roses everywhere you walk. It's it was amazing. And so I was like, yo, I could go there. So when I got off the plane and got you know. Oriented with the study abroad group that I was dealing with, they gave me the keys to my, you know, to my homestay family and everything. And so me and my roommate were staying there. My roommate was like, "Well, I'm about to hit the club. You coming with us?" And I'm like, "No, nah, I got some place to go." He was like, "Okay, cool." He had no idea. So I ran. Yeah, he had no idea. He was like, "Hey, you want to go to the club?" He's like, "No, nah, I've got plans." He's like, "Okay, cool." He was like you've been here before. I he was like, "Yeah, I was here during the summer." Oh, okay, whatever He's like, "Well, it was like where are you going?" I was like, "Ah, the date with destiny." I should—that's what I should have told him. I should have told him, but I was just like, nah, I've got plans. And I did have plans. I have I planned to go change my life and become Muslim. So I ran from our apartment up the hill to this mesh to this message. Now, for anybody who's actually been to Granada, it is a very steep and very confusing hill. Because you have down, the downtown modern area that's like in the like sloping into the valley where we were. And my apartment specifically was like almost on the, the southern edge of the town. It was in uh, next to the park where uh, the Spanish poet and writer uh, Federico Garcia Lorca has his house and a garden around it. And so I ran from that area up through downtown, almost getting hit by buses, by people on bicycles, dodging like you know tourists and dog poop and all this other stuff. And then I have to go into the old the old Medina, right? Because it used to be a uh, Arab styled uh, old city, right, which has like these really nice like villas and you know compounds and stuff that are separated by these large white like these white painted walls. So in Spanish they call it Al-Albes, the Albacin. right, which was known for like being like the white walled city, like the white old Medina of, of Granada, you know, back when the Muslims were in power. And so I'm like weaving my way through this by memory, weaving my way through this maze, trying to get my way up to the up to the masjid in time to go. You know, say, and I get there, I'm sweating, I'm drenched, I'm out of breath, and there's all these people there. And most of them are like tourists, and so they I hear the alarm going, being called, and the tourists are leaving and Muslims are coming in. Like, so I found out that the, that the masheed, like closes its doors to tourists um, at a certain time for Maghreb, and then it's just only open to Muslims and everything for like from the evening onwards. And uh, so I walk in and then there's a, a young man there who worked there, his name was C.D. So really tall, you know, really tall guy and everything. He was, I found out later he's like half Senegalese, half German. So I was like, hey, another black guy. So I was like, you know, I'm in Europe. I was just like, I gotta find somebody familiar, somebody I, you know, recognize. What do you do? You look for somebody who has some melanin in their seat, right? So i was so glad I look for the black guy. It's, it's, that's just what I do. So I look, and so I found him and I said, hey, you know, I'm talking to him in Spanish. I'm saying, "Hey," and he's like, "I'm sorry." You know, he thinks I'm a tourist. He's like, "I'm sorry, the message is closed. Thank you so much for coming. Please come back tomorrow. We'll be open. Was like, "Oh no, no, no! I'm not a tourist.
0: I, I want to become Muslim."
1: And then his face changes, he's like, "Oh, okay, okay. Sure, sure. Just you just sit over here. I'll be right with you. Just let me finish doing what I've got to, got to do." So he finishes up and everything. He comes back. He introduces himself. Starts talking a little bit. He's like, "All right, well, let's not waste time because prayer is going to start. Have you ever made me do it before?" And I say, I know about it, but I don't know what to do exactly. I've never actually done it. So he takes me over to that same wall with the Moroccan tiles and everything and he shows me how to be able to do over there. And it went pretty well and everything. It was very cool and refreshing given that I just ran up a hill to get to this mess and everything. So I needed to like wash myself off, actually. The only hard part I had was uh, taking water to my nose and then, like, you know, kind of like being in a pool when you breathe in water and stuff like that, it kind of burns this one part of your brain. If you feel that burning sensation, was that was like, But other than that, it was just fine. But then when I walked in back into the, I was gonna walk into the Nisala with this, with this brother, he turns to me and before we walk in the door, and he says, are you sure you wanna do this? And So I took a step back, you know, mentally, and emotionally, and spiritually, I was just like, I'm leaving behind, I'm like, you know, not leaving behind, but like I'm taking, I'm turning the page. I'm looking, thinking about the 20 years that I've lived Before then and the the good decisions, the bad decisions, and the other things I've done in my youth so far. And now I wanted to make it better and to do something that would increase or enhance that experience that I already had. So I took a deep breath and I said, Yes, I do. Yes, I'm ready. So we walk in and I joined them for prayer. I'm still not Muslim at this point. I still haven't said Mashallah. And I walk in and I joined them in prayer. Again, I've seen this on YouTube and I, you know, researched it and everything, but I actually never did it on my own yet, or at least join the, the line or join the prayer with other people. And so you can imagine that I'm probably pretty awkward when I do it. So like I have no problem like bowing and doing the Roku, cool, right? But when it comes to sujood and going into prostration, I didn't know that at that time I was supposed to put like my forehead and like, the tip of my nose on the ground, kind of like as a point of reference. So when I went into frustration, I, my, the top of my head was on the ground. So I was kind of like you know, uncomfortably and awkwardly like looking at my own rear end and the people behind me and the kids that were playing behind me. So I'm like, this doesn't feel right. So that was the only awkwardness. Right? But I got through it. I fumbled through it. And then um, at the end, the, the brother seating goes up to the imam, who's this a young guy. His name is Bashir. Bashir Castaneda which is cool, right? He, he, is, he has an Islamic name, but his last name is very Spanish. And so, you know, they're kind of like talking to each other. They're kind of pointing at me. And then the Imam waves for me to come on over. And so, he, you know, he's talking to me. And it's, again, it's all the Spanish. I'm just translating it. He says, hi, uh, how are you? And the city told me that you came here from Chicago. I'm so happy that you're here and everything, and that you want to become Muslim. Like, is there anything that we can do for you? Like, do you have any questions, or do you want to talk about it first? Are you, you know, again, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared for this. This is exactly what I wanted to do with him. Really. And he says, All right, well, you know, do you want to? All right, so you know what about the shahada? Right? I said, like, Yes. So you can walk me through it and tell, tell me how it's done. I said, like, All right. So, did and so he says, He's all right with that. Sidi is sitting next to him. he uh, Bashir is in front of me, and so we begin to talk. And he gives me an option too. Said, this, is a, this is a fun part too. He said, All right, we can do this in we can do this in English, Spanish, or Arabic. Pick one. Well, Spain and my major is Spanish. So I'm like, okay, Spanish. And it just feels like I'm you know, calling into like a you know a call center, right? Or like you know, calling into a business and getting the, the automated message. For English, press one. You know, for you know, for French, you know, press two, you know, for, for español, for Spanish, press three. <laughs> For Arabic press so I had options, so he gives me the entire like the entire like rundown of the articles of faith, the responsibilities of Islam the five pillars, and all of those things as well in Spanish right and then switch to Arabic where necessary, and I understood it right and that's what I was able to study. so it, was a, it felt like a very authentic experience, and I'll get to that in a moment, but you know, instead of having it like in other places like you know there's a bit of Difference on how to do a shot and everything. Some places I've seen they have you raise your hand and point your pointer finger up. He took my hand, like it was like a handshake, almost as if we were like sealing a deal, like a, making an agreement, which I found to be very spiritual, special. Like it was a spiritual pact, not with the imam, but him being a representative of the son, being a representative of prophet, son, of the son and giving to me this access to to, his, to his, this way of life, this deen, this, this, this life of Islam. So I repeated the shahada after him in Arabic once, and then twice in Spanish. And then he says, congratulations, felicitaciones, eres Musulman, right? You're Muslim. Now mind you, at that point, I only thought that there was three of us there, it was just me, the imam, and the brothers that I walked in with. I didn't realize that there was like 50, 60 brothers behind me that had just like gathered to witness my shahada. So, and the whole time I'm not paying attention to me because my back is to them. So, I shake his hand and he says, you know, congratulations, you're Muslim. And out of the, the back, I hear Ta-feel! Oh, 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 oh. like, Hundreds of brothers. And I jump, I'm like, oh. I'm like, who are these dudes? And they all, you know, I stand up and they take me by the hand and start hugging me. Some of them are crying and then I start crying and I'm like,
2: who are you? I've never been to a day in my life.
1: And they're all introducing themselves. One's name is like Zaid, and another one's name is Alfonso, and the other one's name is Antonio. You know, and, and you know, and, and like, every, they're from everywhere. They're from Senegal, they're from Morocco, they're from Spain, they're from Madrid, they're from Barcelona, they're from Guatemala, they're from, Guatemala. They're from everywhere. And they're all embracing, like, hey, you're our new founder, you're home now. Like, where have you been all you so made it,
0: right? And so they're like, they're giving they're not just giving me
1: like books and stuff, they're like giving me their phone numbers, they're giving me their addresses, they're like, come to my house, come have dinner with us, you know, we love you, let us know if you need anything. It was different. It was very communal-like. It was like, yeah, a couple of people did give me books, right? But they were like, here's my contact information, hit me up if you need me, right? Or come to my house, I want to feed you. Yeah, of course you got food. I'm definitely coming, right? <laughs> and for the months onward, up until December when I left, it felt and they kept it that way. It was just like that. This was a community of um, whose parents and other community and other like elders you know, some of the founders of that community had converted or embraced Islam in the '70s and in, in the late '60s and the '70s after the death of or actually not the after they they grew up in Spain. They embraced Islam, they were like they used to, some of them used to be like hippies and you know and stuff like that. They used to go and spend time in Morocco and doing the whole thing like rock the Casbah and smoking hash and doing all the Sufi stuff, right? Just as like you know in the sixties and seventies that you see on TV, like you see in popular culture. But what ended up happening was that many of them actually embraced Islam fully, right? But at the time in Spain, there was a repression on, on religions that were other than Catholic because of the dictator Francisco Franco that they had, who put a moratorium on all other expressions of religion. So many you know, many people who were Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Sikh, whatever you were that was not Catholic, even Protestant, right, Were you had to fly him with a radar, you had to do it in secret. So when he died, a lot of that was lifted. And so around 75 up until like 79, 80, that's when this Muslim community kind of like came out of the, the religious closet and they started building around themselves. Now, mind you, still in Spain, they still have like this strange historic vitriol that they have against Muslims, and they're like, oh, they're gonna take over again, right? That's kind of like the weird underlying secret of it all. But they, you know, they power forward against the, you know, against some of the, the, the Catholic government, and even like the archdiocese and like the Catholic church overall of Spain, and like their archbishop and stuff like that, and they built their, their masjid on top of this hill. And so that was the one I walked into and broke, broke into, depending on who you ask. Uh, and that was built a couple of years before I came, like 2004, 2005, they finished it. And so this community, they had names like Bashir and Ali and uh, Abdul Hasid and Abdul Karim. Their last names were all Castanera, Lopez, uh, Villanueva, kind of like you know, Jane the Virgin. And all, you know, they, they had these, they had like some very Spanish names. And why I found that to be very interesting is that there's a sense of authenticity to it. They never left their, their Spanish identity and heritage, but they just added to it and augmented to it with being Muslim. So, you know, for, that was a message for me as well, so that when I, came back to the States, when I came back to the States, I had to find a way to be authentically American, authentically black, but also authentically Muslim. But yeah, like being in Spain at that time really was like, as I call it in Spanish, like, la cuna de mi fe, right, which is like the cradle of my faith, right grew up there looking the to was so loving and tender and merciful and patient with me, right? When I missed prayers, they looked for me, right? If I was trying to figure if I had questions about anything, they had, even if they didn't have the answer, they went and looked it up and then came back. It's like, okay, I found this this and it's, they taught me basic Arabic. They, um, they did everything except everything just shy of like, hey, do you want to go to Hajj with us, right? Which they did, like around this, I think a uh, little hijab fell around like late November going into December of 2006. And so a group of them went to Hajj and we got to see them all. And they did everything except like send me to Hajj with them, which would have been kind of awkward. But it's like, oh, I'm going to Mecca now. I won't be back for another couple of months. So, um, but it was a very loving and very supportive community, and right? And they were very focused on the basics, like get solid and get consistent in what's, what all Muslims agree on. Now, mind you, like they had this community specifically, had its own proclivities, they had their certain specific, like, you know, uh, understandings of, like, fiqh and of, like, their own personal practice as a community and everything, but they didn't, like, force that upon me. They didn't say that this is part of your Islam. They're just like, this is the basics that every Muslim knows, and this is what, you know, this is what's going to tie you with all of your siblings of faith around the world. We all pray. We all fast in Ramadan. You know, we all learn the Qur'an and try to learn Arabic so that our prayers will be valid, and we all get along together as a community. And uh, yeah, it was it was a beautiful, and amazing time, and I
2: wouldn't change it for the world. What an amazing story, and what an amazing sense of community. I mean, a lot of converts don't necessarily get that—that um, that I've talked to—that um, sense of community beyond their initial conversion. Yeah, not at all.
1: And I think, and that was a shock coming back to the states too, where you have you do have con- m- mirror communities that have been Muslim communities that have, that have been in the states for decades. Depending on who you ask as well, for centuries. So when I came back, especially first and foremost to Chicago, it was a big culture shock. Because I went from having this very loving, doting community around me to not having, you know coming home just in time for like things like have it al-Adha. And having and I went, to, I found out about Eaton Prayer on accident. Right? I didn't even know exactly where to go, and I and I went to I think they had it like at the Donald Stevens Convention Center in Rosemont, not far from, um, what you call it, from O'Hare Airport. They had a prayer there and then that was it. I didn't know anybody there and I didn't have like a dinner to go to. No Dawahs, no, you know, no friends, Muslim friends or anything like that. And I think, oh, that was New Year's Eve. It coincided with New Year's Eve too. So it was very lonely. I came home. I was a new Muslim. I didn't know any Muslims in Chicago. Most of the Muslims I knew were back in, at university in, in Carolina. So it was a very lonely, I just remember feeling extremely lonely at that time, right? And just like, even my parents, my younger brother, they went out to parties and stuff like that for New Year's Eve, and I was like at home with the dog, watching like the, you know, Dick Clark on TV and stuff like that with my, you know, sparkling grape juice, you know, being all sad and stuff, right? Uh, (laughs) I'm laughing about it now. But uh, yeah, it was... Having that type of support, specifically for you know for people that have embraced Islam I and are brand new to it, it's necessary for them to have that sense of community because that's how you express That's how you figure out what's not just what's right or wrong, but you feel like you're in it together, right? It's a human experience. It's a communal experience, and Islam is not a religion or not an experience that you a spiritual experience that you do alone. When I think back to going back to school and everything and finding you know a sense of, a little bit more of a sense of community there and then. You know, being connected to people in Chicago by by the folks that I got to know in in North Carolina in Greensboro, that started to it, it got easier over time, and then it led to me being involved more in forming, helping other people who were in the same trajectory as myself to actually form groups and to form resources for new Muslims or people with, that I like to call recommitting Muslims, right? Who maybe grew up in a Muslim household fell off of it or someone that didn't see themselves in it because because of other issues and then want to come back to it on their own. So, like, people who are recommitting to the faith, to the theme. And so that's when, like, myself, a couple of friends of mine, like, Mike Swice, Hazel Gomez, and a handful of other people um, formed an organization called the Chicago Copper Connection. And so we would have, like, just regular uh, sessions, like, like, halakas and Just social events and everything like potlucks and stuff for us to be able to learn something and to come together as a community. Now, again, it wasn't just for conference, but it was open for everybody that was, wanted that type of space that at the time, many massages were not offering, right? And many community centers just didn't have either the resources or the focus to do. And then it grew into a point where it became like a, almost like a social service. Like we were in some cases, I remember Mashallah, we were raising money for people who had been kicked out by their families for embracing Islam I and mean, we were putting them up in an apartment or a hotel. Right? We were fundraising for them. We were, you know, we made, we got sponsorships and were able to make like new Muslim kits for people, like with a copy of an English translation of the Quran and like a new prayer rug, and like, you know, like and lots of like con- obviously contact information for like one of us as well, just to be in touch with them. I that mentorship and that you know that, uh, that aspect of it as well. Like if you need something, come talk to us and everything. And Barcelona grew to the point now where you have like or you had an organization like Talif Collective come in from California. It's like, yo, you guys are doing like the same stuff we're doing in the Bay Area, but on a whole nother level. And then that gets you know rebranded and transformed into Talif Chicago. So
2: this was before Talif. This wow. was before
1: Talif, right? And so and again, and, and it's not to like throw shade on anybody at all because I've I love and. Uh, and pray for it to this day. It will set up the son of him and will preserve him and outstay his lifetime and, and maintain his health and the, his family and the community that benefited from it. But just knowing that there was a group of us people like Michael Swice, his wife, Ali Abelal, and uh, uh, hundreds of other people as well who, again, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm blanking on their names right now. If you hear this, I'm sorry, but you know, I know you, right? Like these are the people that would go to like, we would be in Humboldt Park we were being at, you know, American Islamic College, sitting there with Omar Muzaffar and with, you know, other people, you know, Ubaimullah Evans and Abdullah King Dickinson and other people as well who would come and just have honest conversations about how Islam is supposed to play into our lives. And then even, like, bringing in, like, the kid, the children of converts as well. Like, these are people who are, like, established in their lives and their careers, 40, 50 years old even, they're in their late 30s. Had kids, you know, already had kids that were you know, elementary school, middle school, and then their parents embraced Islam. Uh, what kind of support do you give to the children who are seeing this transformation in the parents, but they're like, "I didn't sign up for this. I'm not sure what it means to be Muslim." So they have to have a, a different type of approach and sense of community for themselves too. So we started trying to do stuff for their children as well, so that they not only understood the the process and the the, the journey that their parents were on but also how that was supposed to make sense in their own lives and what that meant for their own growth and development as human beings and whether or not they wanted to be identified as Muslim too and helping them to foster that if that's what they wanted. And it it, it was really, you know, if you don't have it there, you build it yourself. You find the other people that want to do the same thing and you have people, you know, have people with their roles and their their specialties and the good things that they're good at and they provide that chitmah and they provide that meaningful, beautiful service to people and you build a community for yourself. Right. And, and also, to, like we didn't we didn't try to butt heads with anything that was already there, right? We weren't, you know, saying like, you know, don't go to any of the mosques, don't go to MCC, don't go to this message, don't go to that masjid. We weren't saying that, but it was a matter of making sure that they felt stable in their own identity as a Muslim, and that it wasn't predicated on the negative experiences that they may have had dealing with some dealing with some people and dealing with other Muslims. Because mind you, people are still people, like a Muslim. But you have to figure out what that means for yourself and your own oh, relationship with God. And then take that love, take that mercy that you're being filled with, and then act on it. Have that faith, and then have the acts and the works that give that you're in the heart of life and give your, your deen meaning. Because faith without works is dead. Right? If you're a Muslim, but you don't act on it, what are you doing? And if you're doing all this good stuff, but you don't have a certain dynamic you have a certain you know, divinely inspired sense of mercy that's driving you forward and you recognize where it's coming from. You're, you're, just, you're just doing stuff just to be doing stuff. It's like, oh, you're a good person. So, yeah, but where does that sense of good come from? If, even if you're doing all these good things and everything, who are you going to be accountable to? What are you going to be accountable to? What are you going to show for? Who's going to vouch for your goodness? Right. So, yeah, that sense of community, like I wanted that for myself and I knew that I would too. and so we tried our best to make it for ourselves and we hope that a lot of steps and then the good came from
2: can you just uh, talk a little bit about how that feeds into the work that you're doing now so
1: alhamdulillah that the opportunities that I've had so far have like really stemmed from this notion of this this, uh, this deep seated love that I have for wanting for myself wanting for others what I want for myself and so being a young man I got embraced embrace this when I was 20 years old and and I didn't always make the right decisions, even after I became Muslim awesome as well. I did a lot of stupid stuff as well as, as I was trying to figure out what that meant for being Muslim and also to get away to shift away from many of the habits and the mindset that I had before as uh, as a young man. And so <clears throat> uh, that's kind of what led me a bit to working with other young people like myself. And Certainly, the Chicago Convert connection and the Ta Collective gave me that platform to be able to exercise that so when I was in volunteering with Convert connection and with uh Talith in Chicago, my area of focus or my my uh, what I was really good at was getting to know the getting to know the kids of congress right there's um, the rush family um, I, Sophia, if you hear this. May Allah bless you and your family. She had she has um, three wonderful children, inshallah that are graduated from high school and some of are going to go to college now. That I have a wonderful relationship. with Another sister, Eve Rivera, who um, has a wonderful family too. And, like I know them for barracks Right, every time I saw them, right? every time they came to tell me, they got barracks like on site. And um, you know, just men, you know, just being there and a mentor for them as well, I'm spending time with them outside of it too. There's another young man. His name is uh, his name is Malik. Um, we would just go to like the planetarium together. Like I would check in with him and just like I would help him do his homework. and just be a, a mentor for him as well because he lived not that far from it. And his mom was you know was came to Talib and knew of me as well. And I had that type of vibe. That's the the type of service and the type of re- relativity that I had to bring to the table. And people saw that and they appreciated it and they gave me the means and the platform to do something because they trusted me to do that and I wanted to be trusted. in it. And so, there's another, uh, the, another one of my colleagues, and I hope that, um, and, and his name, uh, he, lives in, he lives in Dallas, in Plano, Texas specifically, the home of frito Ladies and Dr. Pepper and, and Texas Instruments. Um, he invited me to apply for a new position that was coming up in his home mosque in, uh, in Plano to be a youth director. And so I applied and I got the job and uh, I was there for a year, 2016. And um, it was just before then as well, in 2014, that uh, I got married, alhamdulillah, to my uh, wonderful wife, Hannah. And she's Canadian, right? So she's from here, and she's from here in GTA. She's from Mississauga, specifically. I can't, I'm not even on friends They're like, oh, she's from Toronto. I was like, no, she's not, she's from Mississauga. Right? Those who know, you know. <laughs> and um, so we all moved together, and at that time, also, we had just had a newborn, alhamdulillah, our daughter. We moved down to Texas, and it was, it was, it was different. But it was a great opportunity, and really allowed me to cut my teeth into the, the actual needs of the actual needs of young, of young Muslims growing up here in the States or here in, in North America. They're dealing with a lot, and you know they're finding some answers. But I think the main challenge that I see is that there's a there's a disconnect on the basis of irrelevance sometimes from our from our, our scholars and from our community centers and the leadership that they have in there. If our young people are dealing are trying to understand and grasp the concept of believing in God in the first place, or why, you know, or certain ins and outs of like gender relationships and everything, or their own demons and their own you know, issues with their own mental health issues, you can't just throw a halakha at them. You can't just say, Oh, you need to you know to have, you know, build your Iman and everything. Like, yes, the Iman is at the, the core of and everything, but you have to speak to people where they're at and tie it back into those aspects as well through the means and through the needs of it that, that actually need to, that need to be addressed. So one thing I know for you know for sure is that the Prophet Muhammad the son of son, and peace and blessing be upon him he was very keen on getting serving people where exactly they needed. Even if that meant that if they were hungry, he gave them food. He didn't give them da'wah, he didn't give them he didn't talk to them about, you know, Oh, you need to fill your belly with the, you, you know, know, fill your belly with the vicar of Allah. Like, no. Oh, like, oh, you need bread? Here. Do you need more? Sure. What, you know, can I get you a, you know, can I get you a camera? What else do you need? Let me make sure you're, you're satisfied. You're good? You're good, man? Right? Okay. That's what he, well, that's really he's well. I and that's, that was his job. Meeting people where they're at and exactly what they need and not with the suit. So with that in mind, I wanted to, that's what helped me to focus on like, the, the type of youth work that I wanted to do. And I was learning as well from many of my mentors and teachers in that regard, people like Hazel Gomez, like Mike Swice back home in Chicago, and others of wonderful people as well, like Steph Abdurrahman Murphy, who's again, Chicagoan as well, who I, you know, who I had a chance to sit and learn from when he was living there. And then when he moved to Dallas as well, from him, learning from him and seeing the example that he had with his, his organization Roots. That was in Tennessee for a certain time, and then he moved to Dallas as well. And with uh, the work that he's doing at Columbia Institute. And like Omar uh, you know, and, uh, and uh, who was also in Chicago too for a time in uh, Orland Park, and then moved down to Dallas as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of people from home in, in, in Texas too, right? They were all making that move. So, like there was a precedent. For that. And then even while I was in in Dallas too, I had the chance to go back to Tot because they had a youth program there, they have they have a youth uh, Program there called the Inheritor Circle, which is a youth leadership and development um, aspect to aspect to the program, and I got to, to shadow and be a counselor for their annual uh, Inheritors Retreat, and so I wanted all of that to inform that. But mashallah, like things changed and you know, things just changed for us, and so we ended up leaving Dallas and moving to Edmonton, Canada, in Alberta, and uh, we lived there from early 2017 up until. Like August of last year, August of 2018, so about a year and some change. And um, I got to do a little bit of youth work there, not as much because I didn't actually know I was immigrating to Canada, so I had to start my immigration process, so I couldn't legally work at the time. But I got a chance to volunteer with organizations like Tarjana, which was doing which was doing something very similar to Talif as well, and they had like uh, youth activities as well. And there's also an organization that could, they are called the Islamic Family and Social Services Association that had a youth branch called the Green Room, right, which is a youth space um, specifically for them to have programming, also which is an open space for them to do homework, have honest and frank discussions, and really just be that safe space that a lot of people are talking about now for Muslims. And um, I had a chance to be their visiting speaker, like their, their speaker-in-residence, so they, they had flippers there, they had Friday prayers there, for, especially for like, the university students that were around, and McEwen and the University of Alberta. Um, we had covalent programming, and uh, Onboarding for university students, like to make sure that they felt acclimated, you know, especially as Muslims, acclimated to university life as well. And there was a lot of great opportunities and wonderful relationships that, that came out of um, my, my volunteer work there, Mashallah, And I hope that will accept it. And so now I'm here in Toronto, you know, which will be our, hopefully our home base. I, don't, I hope we don't move anymore. I'm tired of moving. <laughs> and uh, I have, I have this. Blessed opportunity to serve in this capacity as youth and volunteer manager at guess, in Mississauga, and I'm hoping that by by the experiences and wanting to see myself, wanting to wanting to get for myself, wanting for others what I want for myself, a positive and wholesome relationship with Allah that is authentic and that is rooted in my own fitrah. For other people, especially for young people as well. Have gone through the same upheavals and confusion and decision making that they've never had to experience before that I went through wanting just to wanting for them to find have a place where they can have a bit of clarity on how to think and how to develop their heart
2: do you think there's something that we can do communally to address some of these issues that our youth are facing I personally feel like um, one thing that came up a lot when I was um, involved with the mSA University of Toronto was the racism and judgment that's kind of uh, in our community.
1: Yeah, and that's still present. I don't think that's gone anywhere, unfortunately, and it's now exacerbated and much more in the forefront now um, with the current politics and the current discussions around identity politics and other aspects of our of our current the current state of our society. So you'll find now that. We are because of the you know, because of the discussions that are happening around specifically like anti-black racism right, and Islamophobia and discrimination and discrimination on the basis of class on, you know, on economic economic stability and tangibility and just you know and also the immigrant versus you know, home you know, uh, the the otherization of immigrants and stuff like that that happens as well. Yeah, you know, there's going to be a lot of conversations around that and it's going to affect people directly because for for young people like us, we that's never been our MO really, right? Like we we're exposed to it and we see it and we're like, that's not, that was never really a focus for me. It wasn't a focus for me to only stick to people that I know or only staying within the comfort zone. And so the question and the and the resources and the type of discussions and the actions that young Muslims like you and me should be moving forward with, and the type of work that we should be acting towards now is to reduce as much of that as possible by acting as prophetically as possible. So, to answer your question, is more like these are the type of work. This is the type of work and the type of um, encouragement that we should work towards is building up that esteem for wanting to be Muslim, for wanting to not just learn about your being, because not everyone's going to be a scholar, but taking what you know and making something out of it. Because yeah, I'm not a scholar anymore. Right? I, don't, I didn't sit, you know, I, I had a chance to, I had the opportunity to sit sometimes and, you know, whenever the opportunity to present itself to sit with scholars and, and righteous and knowledgeable people, men and women alike, to learn from them. And to, but what I always did was make sure that whatever they were teaching me, I actually could mm-hmm. apply it. Right? What's in it for me? What is it? How's this going to affect my daily life? And also, how is it going to make me a better person? So, if I'm always asking myself that question, I'm always asking myself, where is the law in this? Right? How am I going to, you know, where where's the beauty of the law? Where is the majesty of the law? Where, is, where are his attributes and his, his remembrance of what I'm doing? Then that reduce, for me, that reduces having, you know, a lot of the issues around discrimination of anti black racism and misogyny and stuff where people call. Under their breath, call you Kana or Abin or, you know, or use the word amongst themselves because it's popular and everything, but they think that it's okay to say that with you or with other people. Right? These are all, these are all issues. And so as long as we have healthy conversations around them and look for ways to build up one another and look for, look for the attributes and the goodness of the mind and everything in each other, we can keep each other safe.
2: Just have one last question. to sure. And um, in uh, the advice you gave earlier today, you uh, said um, you give some advice uh, of using the dhyana as a means of returning to Lasmana. Can you um, just give some advice to uh, people listening about um, how you know regular people, people that aren't scholars, can can do that?
1: Sure. You have to think. Okay. You have to think first of all, just taking account of what you what Allah has given. And right? say "Alhamdulillah," oh, show some you know, show and express gratitude for what we have again. whether there's a lot of relief. so anything that Allah gives us, whether it's our physical you know, physical things such as our health, money, support of family, people around us, maybe a good you know, something that's emotional, maybe a good sense of a good balance of what what it takes to be happy. Right? We have good emotional health as well, and we're able to express ourselves and our emotions. Other people have good mental health. You have to be grateful for that, too. And of course, spiritual. Some people, their only relationship with, with, with Islam is just to pray, but is devoid of meaning? is devoid of love, right? but they still pray, right? Because they know that this is Islam, this is what I'm supposed to do, and they're dedicated ecosystem, they're and i And of reward them mentally. Everybody's at different levels, and people are not only just struggling, but people are blessed with many different things. Allah gives who He wills and He takes from whom He wills. Some of us have, some of us don't have. So when it comes to like using the world, using the these means to get closer to Allah. The first thing is gratitude. As long as you're a thankful servant, Abdul Shakurah, which is like the Prophet Muhammad, he's going to keep giving you more. And I think I mentioned this before too, is that when you keep getting gift after gift after gift, the main thing you want to know is, is who the sender is. You want to be able to thank them. So, gratitude is one, is one major thing, right? And finding ways to it. Even if it's something as simple as Alhamdulillah. Or, a little bit more robust as sharing those gifts, sharing those, you know, those, those uh, blessings that you have been given with others, right? To the benefit of Allah. Another thing, another aspect of using the means of the world to get closer to Allah and to get to that goal, is to make sure that everything that you do, you don't hold on to it for yourself. As we used to say, like in the world is in your hands, but not in your heart. Right? And this is, of course, also part of our tradition as well. The world is in your hands, but not in your heart. So you're using it, you're molding it, you're forming it, you're distributing it, you're taking it in, you're putting it in its right place. You're, You're wielding it with the means that you have, and you're putting things in the proper place, which is also the definition of justice, putting things in the proper place. And then what is not attached to you, because these things are just going to come and go. The, they're going to come in one hand and out the other. But Nothing's permanent except the law itself. So that's another thing to keep in mind as well. Another point. Mind. And then five, and then the last one I'll um, be going over and um, talking The last thing that I could think of is to find other people that want, that are generous, that want to give, and that want to do right with the gifts that that, that they have as well. Be around other people that want to do that too. Find you know finding you know connections with people that they can that you can share those experiences, share those intentions and in the uh, commonality of your of wanting to do well and do right by people and the benefit of others, in the benefit your and by extension benefit yourselves for the sake of Allah. Right? As though I and mean, people say like, you know, fī for the sake of Allah, on the Fisa on the path to God. A deal is a path. You know, it's not just for the sake of that. You're doing it. You're doing these things because these are the things that are going to get you to God. This is the path in the battle of God. And then if you want to go a little bit deeper, like you're not going to go to God unless you want to get there. Right? You don't go anywhere unless you want to go there. So, and if that's the case, you want to go to Allah, why do you want to go to Allah? Because you want Him. You want to get close to Him. You want to meet Him. So you're going to do everything that you can, you're going to take these steps, you're going to show gratitude, you're going to give, you're going to take, you're going to put things in their place, you're going to be generous, you're going to you know, take care of yourself, you're going to take care of others, you're going to do everything you possibly can because through it all, and consistently through it all, you do So remember where you're going. Ladies and gentlemen, remember where you're going.
2: Dr. Dr. thank you for your story, for all of your time
1: know how acceptable and the good that comes from it and protect us from the, the evil of it and the negative the things that may come from it as well. And
2: thank you so much again for
1: this opportunity to be here to be of service to you and to the listeners as well. And if I can do anything else and help, let me know, inshallah i am happy to do my best.
0: So okay. Yeah. So I'm all good. نور المنازل يا محمد يا من خلق من نور ربه يا من